Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. This week on the Dutch Podcast, I get to talk with our founder and owner, Mark Newman. Welcome, Mark. And really just catch up on all things from 2023 and most importantly, talk about what's coming in 2024 because we have a lot planned for the year. So welcome, Mark. I'm so happy to get the chance to chat with you today. Glad to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and absolutely Happy New Year to all of you listeners. We're really excited to be spending another year with you here on the podcast. I want to talk, Mark, just first about some of the real changes that we've seen in 2023. And I want to just start by asking you, what are the things that happened in the past year that you are most excited about as you reflected on our year with Dutch? I think uh, this year, um, stay alliterative with evidence and education, I think have been the two um, biggest areas where we've made some some really meaningful steps forward um, over this past year. It's been kind of a longstanding, um, maybe struggle is too strong of a word, but the, you know, one of the, the two-edged sword of the Dutch test is there's a lot there um, and there's a lot there, uh, meaning you get a lot of information, but it's a lot to dig through. It's a lot to understand. There's some new terminology, some new concepts. And so um, we've for a long time been working on uh, two things, um, an interpretive guide for providers to be able to go topic by topic and just get education on what this means. What does that pattern mean? What's the connectivity between things like free cortisol and cortisol metabolites? So um, that came out this year, which has been a huge help to our providers in just trying to leverage the Dutch test for as much meaningful information on their patients as they can. Um, And then secondly, our Mastering Functional Hormones course, which has been also a huge success um, and been a great help to providers in just, you know, immersing themselves for five hours of, of education, uh, of course, which you know well, because both of these projects were um, on your plate and uh, you did an, an awesome job of getting those done really well and then out the door this last year. But it's been a really great response from people in just, just essentially like Hormones 101 and Dutch 101, kind of in one educational course, um, which complements the interpretive guide well. And together, I think those have armed our providers with just a lot more competence and a lot more confidence to use the Dutch test really, really well. So that's the education side, which is, um, you know, we're by no means done on that front, but those yeah. are the two big steps this year. And can and I, can the- I just talk with you a little bit more about those yeah. two items? So if you guys haven't heard about these two things yet, you should read your emails first of all, but, um, you know, ultimately, these are a mastermind of the clinical team. You know, you say it was on my plate, but the clinical team, we have an amazing team of doctors, um, not just doctors, we have a dietitian, we have a nurse practitioner, um, but an amazing clinical team who speaks with our docs all the time to support you guys in testing and interpreting the tests. And 
really what we wanted to do was take their brain and take all the things that they share with you on these consultations and turn them into self-serve guides. And so a couple of things. One, the interpretive guide, like you said, Mark, it's been incredibly well received. And I'll tell you that we are hearing even from our own doctor team that when practitioners call in, they're so much more well-informed. They're so much more confident. They're really coming in to affirm what they learned from the interpretive guide and then maybe figure out some nuances. And it's given just such a great foundation to learning how to interpret hormone test results. So that's amazing. And then the course, we've actually been able to measure the impact on the providers who've taken the course. And what we see is that they're way more confident and way more effective in interpreting the Dutch test as well. So those, I would just reaffirm, those resources are so great for you to be able to dive in and really understand not just Dutch testing, because we do, of course, want you to use Dutch testing. But more importantly, we want to transform patients' lives. And we know that you learn about hormones or get hormone results from all kinds of different places, even just basic labs like you know Quest and LabCorp and things like that. So the more competent we can help providers be, the more literate in understanding where hormones are made and what they do and how they can be modified or why they might be high or why they might be low. These are just other ways we can help providers improve their patients' lives. And that's ultimately what matters to us. So, you know, just to kind of add a little bit to that and put a little plug in that those are available in the provider portal if you are interested in either. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely encourage people to take advantage of that and just call our support team if you're having trouble um, getting at any of that information because it's uh, it's been really well received and it was really well done by our our clinical team. All right, so we t- we've covered education. Now let's talk about evidence. Yeah, evidence is um, you know it's a a passion of mine personally. It's a passion of us as a group. Um, is that what we do leans on some things we believe to be true about um, what we do and, and what the the connectivity is between the results. Um, that we give people and the clinical picture and what it represents in patients. Um, and we've been on a quest to take those claims and and put them um, to test them uh, under the weight of the data that we've been collecting over the years. Uh, so that's been a really nice journey for us, starting with validation data, which is the simplest um, of what we've done in terms of evidence is just the basic claims of does this correlate to serum? Does the cortisol correlate to salivary uh, free cortisol patterns? Do these four collections that we have on dried samples, do those collect to the more traditional old school 24-hour urine collection? Like all of that's been done in years past and was the foundational piece. And we've really taken some big steps these last two years to push in on the clinical side of it uh, particularly on HRT, but also just generally. And this last year, um, we there was kind of a culmination on the HRT side of things in taking what we had published in both abstracts and papers in the, the two years prior at looking at when you're looking at uh, transdermal estrogens in particular, where our test is really, really useful, at least hypothetically. And then we want to push into into moving from hypothetical to a reality of of, uh, of looking at what the data shows as you scale up on both patches and gels, and then also to uh, compounded creams of estradiol, moving from the low doses to the medium doses to the high doses. Do we see the type of pattern that we expect? And then do we see a pattern that when you overlay, and this is really important to me, is when you overlay the clinical response to those same products, uh, do you see 
coherence there. And that's what we, that's what we see. And so we want to get that into the published literature. And so to be able to have that this year in menopause, you know, a top tier journal, um, where you're getting really, really quality peer review on, um, the data and the conclusions that we're drawing, looking at, again, the data for, for estradiol patches, estradiol gels and estradiol creams, um, that was huge and 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 also continuing to shape the message and the education about how to use lab testing generally and the, especially the dutch test as it relates to like optimizing what are our target ranges when people are on these types of products um and so that's been uh, a really big accomplishment for us so you can see that in the november uh episode of the menopause journal and we're just seeing uh, very recently that even though it's late in the game in November, uh, it's in the, the top five in terms of uh, journal impact for menopause uh, articles in terms of uh, research that's been published throughout the year in terms of just how many eyeballs are are on it and how much that information has been shared. So we've gotten some really good feedback um, and some good traction on just continuing that conversation about the clinical utility of the Dutch test for HRT and specifically for one of its sweet spots, which is for um, the monitoring of transdermal estradiol products. Um, that's been great. And then secondarily, and just last month, uh, we published some data looking at the correlation between cortisol, uh, particularly cortisol metabolites, and BMI. So just trying to unpack a little bit this relationship between cortisol and weight gain, weight gain and cortisol. Um, and so that's been really helpful as well in terms of taking that relationship that we believe to exist uh, from existing literature and then putting that to the test in the data that we've collected ourselves from real world data from you know tens of thousands of patients uh, tested over the years. Uh, so those two have been, I think, our, our biggest successes this last year um, in terms of putting clinical, cl clinically based evidence out into the peer reviewed literature as it relates to, again, the, the connection between uh, clinical realities and Dutch test results. Yeah, I mean, these are really exciting, both of these areas. I mean, the cortisol BMI paper really is one of the kind of newest, most novel ones to look at that connection between stress and waking and why that happens, right? Um, kind of what are the alterations we see in people with elevated BMI that are consistent? And and actually, like cortisol did not rise to be really very unique between people with high BMI and normal BMI, but specific, right. but, um, specific metabolites of cortisol did, which right. really, like you said, one, it's cool to better understand the physiology. We know it's HPA access dysfunction more on the metabolic side, more so likely than the production of cortisol. However, you know, you also have a tool at your fingertips as a clinician to be able to take a look at that and see whether stress is likely to be, you know, a compounding factor there. Um, yeah, the, that story um, is particularly meaningful to me. And uh, many people may not know this, but that was that specific relationship was part of the genesis of the Dutch test was digging into literally millions of saliva results for cortisol with the backdrop of people actively telling the story that as people are gaining weight, their cortisol should be going up. As cortisol is going up, they should be gaining weight. Like this relationship that's sort of generalized, accepted. And then when I went and dug into the literature, this is, you know, years ago, um, there wasn't a relationship. And so I went in and dug into real life data and found, oh, 
there there not only isn't a relationship if you tease out any relationship at all it's it's in the opposite direction in that free cortisol if anything has a very very slight negative relationship uh, most of the data it's just nothing but if there's anything it's a very slight negative relationship meaning as people's bmi goes up that free cortisol goes down a little bit and so i i paused on that long ago um and then kept digging a little bit at the cortisol story and found oh like here's where cortisol really really rises is as bmi goes up not cortisol as you mentioned but its metabolites go way up and then then you just pause and go okay well how how can we dig that story out of saliva well you can't uh right. the metabolites of cortisol are not meaningfully measured in saliva and that's where this combination of dried samples and then ultimately dried samples and and saliva for the dutch plus um that was actually the the genesis story of the dutch test was taking this two-dimensional cortisol story which is free cortisol over time so that's a two-dimensional story that's super super important whether you get it out of saliva or urine very interesting um and then the third dimension being the metabolites meaning that the free cortisol is not a good measure of total production but it's a great measure of what's going on at the tissue level in real time and what's going on with the diurnal pattern but the better way to measure the production of cortisol being its metabolites so then now all these years later we've gone back into our own data to see if that same reality holds true and in fact it does and when you stare at that data a little bit and you look at you know how little bmi change it takes overall not in individual patients necessarily but overall to see a doubling of those cortisol metabolites i mean that's a that's a very meaningful um change you can see it's that's a strong relationship those those r values in there um being you know around 0.5 that's a for a clinical correlation a really strong correlation that right. disappears entirely when you look at free cortisol so again uh, just trying to tease out like meaningful relationships in, and showing the value of why we're after comprehensive testing, not just hormones, but hormones and their metabolites. And so that one, again, is meaningful to me because it goes right back to our, our origin story. Well, I'm, I'm glad you took the time to kind of share that. And I think it is interesting because if as a listener, you're using an HPA access evaluation tool that's saliva only, especially for patients with challenges with weight, you are missing out on really critical information. So I love yeah. that you shared that because you're right, that just like with estrogen, you know, you want to look at metabolites in urine. Turns out that with cortisol, it's really very similar that the metabolites can tell, you know, a big piece of the story. And that's just one piece that you mentioned. There's many more where cortisol metabolites can be really critical to understand what's happening with a patient. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting like onion to peel um, because we find... I mean, I think one of the things that that we've been able to present to people is this fraction of people, which is a, a hefty fraction of people who have low free cortisol that you just somewhat blindly say, oh, if your free cortisol is low, we need to ramp up cortisol production. The fraction of those people that actually have elevated metabolites, you know, those people are are hyper producing cortisol and your 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 story that you're telling yourself is the opposite of that so then right. when you shove more cortisol at them and they're all, already making a lot of cortisol in the in the one of the interesting sort of uh little niche pieces of information in there is that the the cortisol's first place it goes is into the adrenal medulla and in the adrenal medulla cortisol which in those cases there's a lot of even though you may not know it cortisol pushes norepinephrine to epinephrine and so you think about what happens in those patients that are already in a high state of cortisol there that you may misdiagnose and you shove more cortisol at them you you may end up being counterproductive in in what you're doing and that's been a story again that we've told since the beginning and it's been really nice to see the data 
sort of confirm that those conclusions are not only there, but they're strong in terms of the, the correlation uh, between the, the lab results and what's going on uh, clinically in those patients. Well, I think that this is probably something that we should peel off and like take that onion and have a whole separate episode on it because I think cortisol metabolites are an area that a lot of people either have no clue about or they're confused about. And really diving into that could help to provide much better insights for providers. So we'll make sure we get that on the docket for this year um, because I do think that's an area that we could learn so much more. So a lot of exciting research. You know, you mentioned the HRT research, just a couple additional points upon, about that. This is one of the first papers, really the first that we know of, that's done a side-by-side -side comparison of patches, gels, and compounded mm -hmm. creams because right. compounded creams are not real present in peer-reviewed literature. Um, and there's not a lot of places because every, you know, pharmacy is making them differently. They might have different ingredients and in the base that affect sure. the absorption or bioavailability. So um, this is a real world example because we're looking at pooled data from pharmacies across the country. And, you know, it, our results were really interesting. I want to just briefly touch upon that for providers because we did see that creams were effective, but we also saw that the levels of E2 measured on the tests were not quite as high as that with gels and patches. Is there anything else that you want to mention about that? No, you're right in that it's a bit of a black box. Um, you know, when you go to an estrogen patch and an estrogen gel, there's all this data that's that's necessary because they're FDA cleared products. And there's value in that. There's value in the fact that there's a lot of review and research surrounding those, but it, it allows you to drop in there and say, what's the clinical picture here? What's happening to bone? What's happening to vaginal atrophy? What's happening to you know, vasomotor symptoms. And then how does that jive with the lab testing? And that, that was a big part of that paper is saying, okay, if we overlay the clinical story between patches and gels, super useful. Why? Because there's a huge confounding factor here. And that is that the story that's told on those doses of patches and gels, where we know the clinical picture is so dramatically different in saliva than it is in either serum or urine. And that's been a story that needs to be unpacked because there's a lot of sort of mythology around that in terms of what those saliva values mean. And of course, that's something we we talk about a lot and we need to dive into that in detail here. Um, but that was an important thing to get out into the literature because there is only one paper that I'm aware of with serum data of estradiol for compounded creams. Um, there's a lot of labs and a lot of people with a lot of data for saliva, uh, but almost none that's been published in peer-reviewed uh, because you need to be able to wrap it around a coherent clinical story of some sort. And you just really can't do that with that data because the data defies the clinical data. And so trying to make sense of that, other than to conclude that it's not clinically relevant, um, is, is I think, near impossible. And so that was one of the things that we showed that was really interesting is showing that patches and gels that have similar clinical outcome leave you with urine data that's similar. That's really helpful in saying, okay, this, this may be a really good tool for monitoring and, um, and asking the question about estrogen exposure from those products. Then once you have established that and say, okay, there's a, there's a reasonable level of coherence here, then you can go ap apply that to the black box of the creams to say, okay, if I'm going to use a cream and I want to get the same clinical impact for a gel or a patch, then I want to be in that same range. And for us, that's that sweet spot of above the postmenopausal range, maybe up into the, the luteal range just a little bit, but in that little sweet spot, 
that's where the gel data and the patch data converge to say, hey, this is a reasonable place to be to get help with things related to menopause and the dose you need for a cream, which we know from other studies doesn't absorb as well as the alcoholic gels. The alcohol tends to, to help drive it in better. Um, you're going to need a little bit more estrogen. And this this paper and this uh, these data, I think, gives people a really good starting point. And then also the implication that this as a monitoring tool will help you know when maybe um, you need to push a little further if you're going to see things like bone mineral density increasing or when maybe this woman absorbs like crazy or or maybe the pharmacy really got it right in terms of absorbability and then now maybe you're overdoing it a little bit. So I think that it's um, the case you can make for urine as a, a tool to peer into those questions for patches, gels, or creams. I think uh, we've really enhanced that with the data that we're able to publish in that in that paper. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, you're right. You have to have like a plausible scientific explanation for what you're seeing, you know, clinically in labs for the labs to make any sense. And this paper really kind of puts that into perspective um, for all three major forms of transdermal estrogen. So right. um, very exciting to be a part of that, um, that research. If you want to learn more about our research, because we have a lot published data and we actually are working on two more papers right now to be submitted. Um, this spring. So really exciting. We have more in the pipeline. Our team is very busy. Um, you can learn more about this at dutchtest.com research. So check that out. And I didn't mention it before, but for the educational resources, if you are a provider today with Dutch, you can get them in the portal, or you can also visit dutchtest.com education. And from there, you can see what's available and then become a provider in order to get access to those research. Those resources are free for everybody, regardless of how many tests you order with us or whether you've ordered yet, um, you can get a hold of those. So definitely encouraged. Let's take a look at the upcoming year because we have so much on our plate. You know, we can maybe start with research. We have two papers in the pipeline, in the immediate pipeline. And in addition to that, we also have some really important white papers um, that we are going through drafts and revising. And so how about let me start with those? Sure. Yet, um, you know, clarifying and validating, I think, are what we're trying to do there. So with, um, you know, the urine tests, typical utility for people, um, you know, we talked about monitoring HRT. How's my estrogen status? And then that question that's been, you know, um, where urine's really been valued is, well, then where does the estrogen go? Phase one, methylation. Um that's the focus of the papers that we're working on now is to look at first premenopausal women with and without DIM. So indole-3-carbonyl, diindole-methane, these, these things that stem from crucifers that help shove that estrogen or suck that estrogen down certain pathways that are thought to be more cancer-friendly um, in terms of prevention of. Uh, that's the focus of these two papers. Uh, the first one, again, premenopausal women looking at women who take it, women who don't, and their different patterns. And then also a smaller subset of people who've tested both before and after. So same women before and after this type of intervention and really interesting data there. Um, so doing two things. One, confirming that the patterns that have been in the data historically, that our testing methods confirm those and show those. That's interesting um, and confirmatory. And then to go beyond that, and we're seeing some patterns there that I think might surprise people a little bit. Um, I'll 
since it's not published yet. I'll save the actual conclusions for when they come out. We can talk about Take those. Um, but but that's going to be really <laughs> really interesting. And then the second paper is just sort of the same topic, but in postmenopausal women. So postmenopausal women that are on DIM, what happens to them? You know, we know it lowers their overall estrogens. It's going to shift their metabolism to to hydroxy, and then and then layered on top of that, women with and without DIM who are on patches. So women who then the estrogen lowers, we raise the estrogen with HRT, and then we start to manipulate that, uh, we being the providers, with these nutraceuticals that are then modifying both the estrogen levels and the, the metabolism they're, they're following. Um, that's gonna be really interesting to get into print. Again, to confirm stories we already know are true, and then some nuances to that where we're actually learning some things about um, about some of those metabolism patterns with those products that might um, might be a little su surprising and might have some consequences that we need to account for in terms of additional nutraceutical support and and looking at individual patterns of women who we're still talking about individual therapy here, right? Like some women are going to uh, create different patterns depending on their unique unique genetics and and how they are interacting with both the HRT and uh, things like methane. So that's going to be really exciting. So that's one topic. Yeah. Um, then the other topic you mentioned are like position papers to clarify yes. uh, what does the literature have to say about progesterone therapy and lab testing, estrogen therapy and lab testing. Like these are these um, complex topics that for years we've been unpacking a little bit at a time and to try to like coalesce those into so coherent position papers about what do we know to be true, what do we know to be not true, and what where are these areas where we're still sort of unpacking and where there is research that needs to uh, address some of the unknowns within this. And then, of course, our efforts go towards those as well. So you can look for those in 2024, and I think those are going to be a big help to individual providers, but also the industry as a whole as we collectively learn and just continue to pursue um, truth as, as difficult as, as it is mm -hmm. in some of these topics to, uh, to stumble upon and then to know with certainty, uh, some of these things that really can help shape our practices into better outcomes for our patients. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited about these white papers and we'll just add in a little bit there. Like as a naturopathic physician, I was trained in hormones and I was trained in testing and HRT and, you know, you, it, but what you see, especially now that I'm kind of in this space, I have always done more cycling female health. Now that I'm looking at postmenopausal female health, you can really see the number of camps that have been established in the integrative medicine space that take different approaches clinically to treatment and to testing. And so, and not only are there camps, there's camps that have their feet in the ground, stake in the ground, true believers that their approach is the best approach. You see this written in like people publish books on this. And a lot of it, when you talk about like stories, really what I'm, you know, what I know you're referring to is like plausible scientific explanations for what's happening. Like what you see clinically can be explained scientifically and then it can be reproduced by various independent groups in a peer reviewed setting, right? That kind of confirms the story. And what I've really come to see is how truly dogmatic our industry is in specific areas and when you start to read the literature, you see how wrong it is. And actually, one of the writers we're working with is a PhD researcher, very knowledgeable about the space, and you know, came in with a perspective. And I think after looking through the literature 
and formulating it and reading it and seeing what is reproduced over and over again in literature, you know, came away to us really surprised, right? Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's another one of those stories of how the literature can change the camp that you're in. And I think what's really important about the continued pursuit of that is even within those camps, which, I mean, there are camps like teaching things that are diametrically opposed. Absolutely. But, but if, if you assume one camp is correct, even within that belief set, um, A, there's diversity within that, and B, clearly areas of that where we do not know the answers to all the questions, which is why we continue to push into some of these questions, because there's there's a matter of taking what we believe to be uh, something that's that's maybe a, a model that's not serving people well, where there's not enough truth to undergird it, that people need to reject, in our opinion, uh, for some of those thoughts and beliefs. Um, that's a passion of ours is to make yeah. sure that yeah. people have a solid footing under what they're doing. But then within that also to continue to refine um, the ideas that we hold to be plausible and that we hold to be true. Even within that, there is a refining process that needs to continue um, as we pursue uh, best practices because there still are not right. studies out there that are like uber comprehensive where people have looked at you know different routes of administration and clinical outcomes and different lab tests and all of these things that we're trying to piece together it doesn't exist in single studies like th so there are um there are questions yet to um answer no matter where you lie on some of these controversial topics um there's more truth to be pursued. And we're going to continue to do that. And along the way, we continue yeah. to learn and we continue to refine uh, our own perspective on on what is true and what is what really um, constitutes best practices for providers to uh, to be helping patients with their health journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you're a provider who's like been taught something about HRT and monitoring, these white papers actually go through the evidence for each hormone. You know, what, what do we... And, Really, what I love about working at Precision is that there is a neutral stance to it. You know, we could do saliva testing of hormones if we wanted to stand that up in the lab. We have the equipment. You know, we could develop that and get it to market. But it's about making the decisions that are going to provide clinically useful information. And these white papers are a great summary to be able to know what literature is out there and what it says in a really a biased way. Because Dutch is not the winner in all cases. When we look at androgens and testosterone, we'll tell you serum's your standard of care. You know, Dutch and urine testing can augment and provide additional information, but your primary source of truth is serum testing, right? And so it's not about selling a tool, it's about understanding the data. And I think these white papers are the best tool I've seen to really comprehensively understand what the literature says in a non biased way that is not requiring you to read those papers yourselves because I know you guys don't right. have time for that. They're really exciting. Right. So anyway, one of the exciting things on the horizon there. Now let's shift and talk about education because we're also looking, you know, this spring to be launching another pretty major course. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it dovetails right into what you're talking about, which is, you know, when you get done digging into all of these issues about HRT in terms of what's proven to be effective in terms of what to take, how to monitor, if to monitor, all of those questions. Um, it's put us in a really nice position to also develop some HRT-centered education. So best practices on HRT, sort of HRT 101, monitoring 101, and then beyond 101 to those, you know, graduate level, if you will, um, ideas um, and, and building that out from 
simple starting places for people to really dip their toe in the water uh, for HRT to be useful in your practices for your patients and then building out from that to some of the higher level things that will really allow people to implement HRT in their practice um, in a way that's, I think, coherent in a way that's consistent with the literature um, and also pragmatic um, and practical. Yeah, um, right. I think that's been something that's, you know, just with the the milieu of like HRT education and, and people having so many different opinions about some of these topics uh, to be able to really focus in on keeping it simple at start understanding what works and building out from there. Um, and then, and then also just being transparent about the ideas where, Hey, there, there, um, are some unknowns in some of this. And we want to just lay those out for people, best evidence, best practices. And I think when people emerge from that, um, if you're in HRT, I think you're going to be more confident in what you're doing. And if uh, particularly if you're just wanting to get started in a way that's evidence-based, um, and, and practical, I think it's going to be a great tool for providers to, um, to push into HRT more in their own practices. I, I can't agree more. I mean, this is like six modules really helping you navigate this complicated topic of hormone replacement therapy. Um, our clinical team has spent hundreds of hours going through the literature, pulling together information and, and like you described, Mark, really helping to zone in on what you need to know when you're first getting started. Because I think a lot of provider overwhelm in HRT, you can go yeah. to a seminar on HRT and walk out feeling more confused than you were when you came in, you know, because there can be so many different models to learn or so many different routes of administration of hormone. And you might walk away not even knowing what the most common ones are. So we're really trying to hone in on this first course to help you understand the easiest, most evidence-based path to move forward. And then we'll expand on that later on in the year with additional educational opportunities. But very excited to see that get off the ground. Absolutely. Uh, we've also going to be making some improvements to our customer experience. So I don't want to leave our podcast today without mentioning what providers might be able to expect in the next year. So maybe we can start by talking about, without getting into too many details, the fact that we're going to be making some updates to our report. Yeah, the um, you know, there's been a long process for us of just getting feedback, uh, monitoring the results that we see, the literature, um, and then casting a vision for the evolution of the Dutch test report itself. Um, and so that's something that we intend to make some incremental changes this year, um, but as the starting point of a, of a process of really optimizing our report um, to not only make it more useful, uh, more consistent and coherent with the way the literature is presenting some of this data. Um, and also, and, and a really big part of this, which is going to take, I think, multiple iterations before before we get um, sort of to this, this ideal state that we're shooting for, is to take uh, the story that's told and make it easier to digest, taking our summary um, page and report and making that more comprehensive in terms of bringing more of the story forward to the front of the, the more meaningful conclusions that for some of those you have to dig a little bit more um, and their ideas and concepts that are important in, in most patients and, and the things that we've learned over the years from the literature and the data, uh, just really taking a, a, some meaningful steps forward in the story that our report tells. That's, that's uh, one of the areas where we plan to improve your experience as our providers and patients uh, during 2024. Great. And we also plan to make some changes to our provider portal. 
I'm not sure how much detail we can provide on that, but anything you want to mention about some updates to our portal that might be happening in 2024? No, as a scientist, it's boring. Um, but as a human being, it's important. Um, you as know, a the doc, manner- it's really fun because we're in there all the time. Absolutely, but the manner in which we're invoicing and some of the the, the pain points of of just the flow of the process of uh, getting people tested. Um, we're working on some revisions to our instructions to make it easier to deal more um, simply with fluid restrictions and some of the things that just make the Dutch test a little bit cumbersome uh, in terms of the collection to make it um, even easier still for patients to successfully and stress-free complete. Those are some of the targets that we have for this next year that we're going to be rolling out, you know, so one piece at a time um, that I think will be just really helpful in making the experience from start to finish easier for people. Yeah. And we're not make, we're not ignoring patients either. You know, we know patients call you, your provider sometimes to, with questions about how to take the test and things like that. So we are doing things to enhance the patient experience as well and make Dutch testing more fun, more beautiful, more easy, and then be able to provide the provider with some additional insights. So a lot happening um, in this upcoming year. So we want to make sure you guys don't miss out on anything, any of these new updates. Make sure that you sign up for our email on our website so you don't miss any news for what's coming out this year. Um, Mark, I'm really grateful for you spending the time with me this afternoon to cover all this because there has been so much. It's fun to reflect on how far we've been in the last year and how far we've come and, and really exciting to think about what we're going to accomplish and be able to share with our customers this upcoming year. So thank you for spending the time with me. Yeah, excited for 2024 and happy new year to everybody. And uh, thanks for the conversation. Absolutely. And thank you guys all for joining us. Uh, Make sure you stay tuned with the Dutch podcast. We have upcoming episodes on topics like stress, circadian rhythm, PCOS and hair loss. Um, And next week, we're going to be joined by one of my favorite special guests, Dr. Carrie Jones, where we'll discuss how stress can wreck the body and what you can do to really repair your body, especially after a grueling holiday, which if you can hear my voice, you know, I've had one. So I'm going to definitely one, hope I'm feeling better next week and to take Dr. Jones's advice to heart. Um, We look forward to seeing you then. We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com slash providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also stay connected with us by following at Dutch test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for more.